Hey, we just have uh, a couple weeks left to finish our work here in Matthew chapter 2, where we've been for the last, uh, I believe, four weeks now we've been here. I hope our pace through this chapter hasn't become uh, tedious to you at all, which, uh, which can happen. Uh, well, I mean, depending on how good or bad the preaching is. Uh, but anytime you spend a lot of time in one place, um, if, if you don't hit the right pace, um, if, if you linger too long, or you, you know, you're, I don't know, it just it can begin to drag a little bit. I hope it hasn't felt that way to you. My hope this week and the next week is to just you know ring out as much truth as we can from what remains in this chapter, uh, in the hopes of kind of tying everything up neatly here and being ready to uh, to dive into the season of Lent, which is right around the corner. I know it's hard to believe, but that's the way time works. Um, it's just. Uh, Two, two weeks from today will be the first Sunday of Lent. So, um, oh, by the way, if you think you're getting out of Matthew because it's Lent, you are mistaken because we are going to still be in Matthew for Lent, but we're not going to be in chapter two. We're going to instead uh, focus on Matthew's, uh, the, the main events of Passion Week that Matthew gives us in his gospel. So if you want to read, read ahead and, be, and prepare, that's how you can be preparing yourself for that. But for this morning, we're still in Matthew chapter two. And we're going to pick up where we left off last week in verse 13, and we're going to read down to verse 18. And if you happen to grab a guest Bible back there, we're still on page 772. That page should start to get worn here before too long, so we keep turning back to it. Uh, But we're going to be there one more time this week. Uh, Here we are, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up! Flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. In our passage here this morning, um, the, the wise men, whom we have been t- looking at and talking about multiple times over recent weeks, they have finally exited, well, I guess for you, it would be stage left. And, and yet, though they are no longer in our, our narrative, uh, th- th- this idea that God is supernaturally guiding people throughout the story, that doesn't end with their exit. In fact, this idea that God is supernaturally guiding people in the story actually preceded the, the arrival of the, of the wise men in the narrative. We go back to chapter 1. You'll find there that um, in the early story of, of uh, Joseph and Mary beginning to learn about uh, God's plans through their lives, uh, when Joseph first heard that Mary had become pregnant during their betrothal, he had originally sought to break their engagement quietly. You may or may not remember, remember that about the story, but it's back there in the second half of chapter 1. Um, and and it, the first reaction to that is, well, why? Why was he seeking to break this betrothal quietly? Well, the answer is in verse 19. It's because he was a righteous man. And we're going to come back to this idea of Joseph being a righteous man here in a moment. The point is, you know, unlike in our day, you know, he didn't take 
to TikTok to broadcast to the world how unfaithful his fiance was. Right? That's what people do today. They, 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 t- they make things public. They air it out. They, they, they maximize the shame they can bring upon the person who has, uh, has offended them in some sort of way. So the person who's let them down. We, w- we want it public. We want it, we want it brutal. We want to take out our vengeance upon them. And you don't sense any of that. You don't detect any of that in Joseph's heart. There's nothing about this that he wants to be public. He has no interest in shaming Mary or, or bringing reproach to her or throwing her under the bus to save his own, you know, to save himself or to, to get her back for what he perceived to be some sort of slight against him in some form or fashion. No, there's none of that there. He intends instead to, to simply break the betrothal privately. But in verse 20, we're told, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And explained everything to him and told him what he was to then do. And verse 24 says, when Joseph woke up from his dream, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. And once again, that's a key dimension to understanding Joseph as being a righteous man. Now this occurrence of an angel appearing to him in a dream is the first of actually five times in just these first two chapters that God is going to appear to someone and talk to them in this way. And this is in addition to the idea that the star is guiding the wise men. And so you have this this supernatural direction of God. And in addition to the other themes that we've seen in Matthew already, we see this, 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 this recurring theme here, that God is directing the righteous, and the righteous are responding with obedience. And that's the other important key to this theme. The wise men, as we looked at the first uh, couple of weeks, they were following the star, but really they were following what? They were following God's word. They were trusting that what God's word said was true. They were banking upon it. They were, they were being obedient to what they felt that it meant for their lives. Each time Joseph has a dream, we're told he's done, we're, we're told he does exactly as he's told. Here in chapter 2, verse 14, it says Joseph and his family left when? Did you, did you check the timing? Did you note the timing of when Joseph and his family left for Egypt? Was it a week later after they made all the prepar- proper you know, preparations? Was it the next day after a, a good night's sleep and a chance to sort of regroup and gather themselves? No. He says they left that night. And I'm having a hard time picturing what that would have been like if it were me. To wake up in the middle of the night from a dream and literally grab everything that I could, including my family, and hit the road at night with a baby. A baby. I mean, we're talking about like a a minimum 150-mile journey lying ahead of them, a a week's worth of travel. And And they have to leave at night, which is incredibly dark, incredibly dangerous, incredibly risky. It would have been... It would have been crazy to to the rational mind to consider making this journey in this way. And yet, this is the faith and the trust and the obedience of Joseph, the righteous man. And we see in him the very model of what a godly father, what a godly spouse, what a godly parent, just what a godly person actually is. Someone who does as God says, exactly as God says, immediately as God says says it. You know, it's amazing when we look through the scriptures and then throughout history and even throughout our own lives and the lives of those around us, it's amazing to see the things that God has done in the world when these conditions are present. When you have God speaking, when you have 
people perceiving his direction, when you have righteous people responding in faith and in obedience. It's amazing what God has done throughout history. And you and I can be sure that the same is still true for our lives today, that he's still guiding. Many of you might be looking for his direction in your life this morning, and I can promise you from the truth of the scriptures that God still guides the righteous. He still speaks through his word. Yeah, he may speak through other supernatural means, but even if he doesn't, you still have the most important voice that you will ever hear in your life, the voice of God in, the, in his word that is true. He still guides, he still speaks, and he still uses those who offer themselves to him. He still uses the lives of the righteous who, who say, God, here am I. Use me as you will. It's not just the, the heroes that we look up to in the scriptures like Joseph. It's everyday people like you and me who surrender themselves to God and say, I am at your disposal. That's who the people God still uses today. So God warns Joseph in a dream. He tells them where they are to go, and that was where? To Egypt. And, and that was a logical place for, for someone in Joseph's situation to go. Egypt, of course, being uh, the, you know, the, the nation that, that bordered Judea to the southwest. Um, it was a, a place with a, a, a large population of Jewish people. There, it was a, a Roman province, and so there's law and order, so to speak. And it was a natural place for, for Jews to seek asylum when in some sort of political danger at home. But God has more in mind in this story for this particular family. He's not just saving them by the most obvious means. He's teaching. He's teaching the people then. He's teaching us today something about the identity and the purpose of his son. Now, as you think about Egypt and you think about the scriptures, what significant point in Israel's salvation history does your mind go to? You go back to the Exodus, don't you? You go, you go back to the first couple of, of books of the Bible. Egypt was the place of the Exodus, that great act of deliverance that, that resulted in the formation of God's covenant people. And do you remember how the Exodus story began? Well, if you don't, we're going to do another much shorter and biblical history lesson here. Okay? We did a history lesson, what was that, two weeks ago? Um, and you all were great. You did such a great job listening and staying attuned, and um, there wasn't, at least I couldn't hear any snores throughout the, the auditorium, um, and so I hope you can, you can do the same thing here for just a, a few moments. The, the book of Genesis ends with the story of Joseph, you know, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Okay, so you have the story of Joseph, how he was betrayed by his brothers, he was sold into slavery and ended up where? In Egypt. And in Egypt, God had a plan for his life. God worked in such a way that he rose to a place of great power and authority and prominence. And, and that book, that whole book ends with this remarkable declaration from the mouth of Joseph in chapter 50, verse 20, where he looks to his brothers and he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. And I want you to tuck that away. I want you to tuck that away, this idea that God had a purpose in a person's life who underwent some sort of injustice and 
as a result of God's purpose in his life, he was taken to a place where he, out from which he could save the lives of many. Okay? Tuck that away and just kind of keep that on the back burner as we're, as we're thinking about this passage here together. So Joseph is there in Egypt, and that's how the book of Genesis ends. You know, the, 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 the people of promise through, through Joseph and his family are, are they're not in the promised land. They're in a foreign land. And that's how the book of Genesis ends. Well, then the book of Exodus picks right up where Genesis left off. And in Exodus, we see Joseph's family has now grown. And, and generation after generation grows and, and flourishes. And, and before long, this, this family becomes a great family. They become a, a, like our kids on Sunday morning. You know, each Sunday in Egypt, uh, more and more Hebrews are coming forward. Okay? And before long... The, the group grew so big that everyone sitting out there in the chair started thinking, oh dear, before long they're going to outnumber us. <laughs> they're going to be so great and mighty that, that we're going to maybe be subservient to them. Maybe if there's a war that breaks out, they may choose to join with the other side. And before long we'll have, we'll have people who, who are scattered all throughout our land who know the lay of the land and they know our weaknesses and, and they're strong and they can make alliances and suddenly we will no longer be in charge. And so what, what, do, what happens? Well, you know how the story goes. Pharaoh decides that um, the only way to get things under control is to subject Joseph's descendants to slavery. It says there in verse 11 of chapter 1, the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. And yet it wasn't enough to stop the rising tide of of the Hebrew presence in Egypt. Because despite their brutality, the people continued to grow. And it got to the point where Pharaoh became so desperate in his efforts to keep things under control that he made the mandate that every newborn Hebrew boy be killed at birth. Now, do you see where the story is going here? Going back to Matthew chapter 2. Do you see the connection? Do you see the parallels? Do you see why Matthew might want to include this little detail about Jesus' life in the very beginning of his life in his gospel? Matthew wants us to make the connection between God's work then all the way back in this, this critical moment in the formation of his people in the world to what God is doing now through his son in this point in time. Matthew wants to make these connections. He wants us to connect the dots and understand the meaning of it all. And we can do that through uh, a discipline that is, that is called biblical typology. And I know that sounds kind of nerdy, and maybe you didn't come here to, to, to hear that this morning. Maybe you feel like that's not encouraging to you or relevant to you, but I promise it is. I promise it is. Biblical typology is a, is a method of interpretation. It's a way of looking at the scriptures and making uh, and interpreting them in a way that sees the, the relevant correspondence between redemptive persons and events and, and institutions in the Old Testament and how they correspond to their fulfillment in the New Testament. All right, it's a way of, of seeing the Bible as a unified whole. Right? We, we don't just have some Old Testament you know, that starts that starts in the beginning and ends kind of, you know, three quarters of the way through, that was for another people in another time and has no relevance to us because we're New Testament people, right? This last quarter is all that matters to us. Well, I think the scriptures themselves would, would indicate to you 
that this last quarter has, doesn't have as much meaning, or at least you can't get as much meaning from it, as if you understood the first three quarters. It's there for a purpose. It prepares for what, what is to come. And typology helps us to see those connections. It helps us to interpret what things mean. It helps to understand things as they really are. Now, the correspondence that typology identifies between the Old and New Testament, it's not an exact correspondence. It's not as if all the, the events recorded in the Old Testament happen like in a carbon copy way in the New, as if there's some sort of one-to-one correlation. It's an exact repeat of things that happened in the past. That's not what it, what it means. It's not looking for exact correspondence. It's looking for meaningful correspondence. It, it's, it's, it's looking at the symbols and the images and saying, what do they have in common? What do they point to? What is it, why does it matter? And all this, of course, assumes that it's the same God at work redemptively in the Old Testament and, and, and in the New. That the things that are begun here are brought to completion, are brought to fulfillment. And the stories we have in Genesis and Exodus and all the way up through the Old Testament, they're real stories. They're, they're about real people and real ways that God was at work in their lives, real redemption and, and salvation that, that was brought to their situations. And, and, and we would never say that they were just symbols. Of course it's not the case. That they're real people with real stuff, and God is really at work. But we also can discern in their lives and in their stories prophetic symbols of what is yet to come. And sometimes those connections, you know, they take a lot of work to see. Sometimes it takes, you know, extra study. It takes extra sort of theological working to to identify those connections. And other times, those connections just fall right out of the pages. In fact, sometimes the biblical writers themselves will just plainly tell you what the connection is. And I kind of see Matthew doing that right here. Right here in this in this narrative where he's telling us something that actually happened, it wasn't just a symbol. You know, just as the Exodus was a real event, in the same way Jesus' journey to Egypt was, was a real event. These are not just symbols. And yet Matthew wants us to consider how the way that God worked then has some sort of relevance to the way God is working here. It tells us something about what's happening. It tells us something about the identity of the people and what their function is, what their role is. He clearly is viewing Pharaoh and Moses as types of Herod and Jesus. In Moses' time, God raised up a deliverer. Despite the attempted infanticide of a paranoidal maniac. And here again, in Jesus' time, we see the same thing that God is raising up a deliverer despite the attempted infanticide of another paranoidal maniac. I think Matthew, all that is to say this. I think Matthew is preparing his readers. It's not exhaustive yet. It's not everything he's going to say about the matter. But he's preparing us to see Jesus as a new and better Moses, who has come to offer a new and better deliverance. As God declared through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 43, he said, I am the Lord 
who opened a way through the waters, making a dry path through the sea. I called forth the mighty army of Egypt with all its chariots and horses. I drew them beneath the waves and they drowned, their lives snuffed out like a smoldering candle wick. In other words, remember who I am and what I did. The single most significant moment in Israel's history in terms of their deliverance that you will ever know about. Remember who I am and what I did. But then in the next breath he says, but forget all that. It is nothing compared to what I am going to do. He will send a greater Moses. He will provide a greater deliverance. He will offer a greater salvation. And this is evident. Once again, we're going back to this. We're looking at the scriptures. And in this instance, the biblical writer himself is indicating the, 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 type, the typology to us. He's helping us to see if you don't get it yet, if, if you are like me and you're so you know, dense and dull to what's actually being said that you need someone just like tell it to you, Matthew's going to do that right here. Right? He's just going to, he's, he's telling us, look what's happening. They're going to Egypt. They're escaping Herod. Does this ring a bell? And if, if, as if that's not enough, he's going to give us a, a, a quote from Hosea chapter 11 here in verse 15. Now, in its original context, Hebrews, I'm sorry, Hosea 11.1 1, uh, introduced a, a section of prophecy in, in that part of the Bible where God is, is reflecting back on his experiences trying to bring up his wayward son Israel out of Egypt. Right? So, so in Hosea, God is reflecting back to that time that he called his son. I called my son Israel out of Egypt. I delivered him through water. I called him to myself. I had purposes for his life. And, and of course, he's talking about the nation, the people of Israel, the covenant people. But they would pass through the waters and go into the wilderness to experience a time of testing that they would fail. Remember that, right? They, they failed their testing in the wilderness. And they would go on to fail time and, and time again. And God is reflecting on that in Hosea 11.1, 1, which Matthew quotes for us here. But Matthew gives us a twist. Matthew looks at God's reflection in the past that's present in Hosea 11.1 1, and sees it as an anticipation of what is to come. That, that, that God is going to call another son out of Egypt. Right? God is going to, to call another son to pass through the waters of baptism in chapter 3. He's passing through the waters. He's going to be driven out into the wilderness in chapter 4. And Matthew is, is taking the, this idea from Hosea and he's applying it to Jesus to help us to see Jesus not just as the newer, better Moses, but the newer, better Israel. In fact, he's not just another son. He is the son. The son who passes through the water, who goes into the wilderness, who has proven faithful over and over and over again. He will become the ultimate example of God working through the righteous to bring about his greater purposes. You think Joseph is doing a great job? He is, and he serves as a model for us all. 
If God speaks to you, obey him completely. Obey him immediately. Obey him without question. Don't, don't hesitate or, or find some alternative or put it off for another time. That is absolutely the, the picture of the righteous life. But there's no greater picture of the righteous life, of, the, of God using the righteous, obedient ones to fulfill his purposes than what we see later in his son. He will embody everything that Israel was supposed to be. And the result will be a newer, better relationship with God for all who are associated with him. So this whole little discourse on typology and helping us connect these dots, all of that is right here in this this simple little narrative about these people that are undergoing this hard time and they're being driven out of their their comfort into a, a foreign hostile land before Jesus is, is even old enough to say a single word. Matthew sees in him both new deliverer and new delivered. The one who makes a way. The one who by his, his example shows us the way. The one that you and I know from, from the, the totality of the gospels and the scriptures. The one who is the way. A better Moses, a better Israel, the sole means by which God is carrying out his greater purposes and calling a new covenantal people that you and I now call the church. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34 says this. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors, when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. Remember, see the connections. God himself is saying, I established a covenant with, your, with, with the people that came before you. When I brought them out of Egypt, I delivered them by my mighty hand. I brought them through the waters. I brought them to myself at Sinai in the wilderness. I made a covenant with them, but there's a day that is coming where something even better is coming. A greater deliverance. A greater covenant. A greater people. They broke that covenant, though I love them as a husband loves the wife, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people, and they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, you should know the Lord for everyone, from the least to the greatest, will know me already, says the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. A greater deliverance, a greater salvation, a greater covenant, and Matthew is telling you and me that in this baby, that day has arrived. So you see, the types exist to help us to know who he is and what he has come to do. But all these things that he has come to do, it, well, that day has come, but not in a final way. Right? The, the, the day has come that, that Jeremiah foresaw, that God promised through his prophets, through Isaiah and others. The day has come, but it hasn't come in a complete way. Definitely not in the story here. Because after all, Jesus is still just a, a baby. He hasn't done everything yet. And not even in Matthew's day, which would have been some 60 to 70 years after these events took place. 
Even in Matthew's day, he, he wouldn't be able to, to say us that the, the day that, the, that, that is being foretold has come in a complete and final way. And you and I can affirm that. That there's still a, a finality that we await. There's still a completion to these things that, that our hearts long for. All these things, yes, they've, they've found inauguration in Jesus, but they have not yet found consummation. You and I still live in a world filled with pharaohs and herods, don't we? We still live in a world filled with brutality and injustice and pain. We still live in a world where the wicked seem to prosper while the innocent tend to suffer. And if God, which, which we've been seeing throughout this whole chapter, if God is so present in guiding and using the faithful, which we see represented there in the wise men and in Joseph and his family, if God is so present and so active and so you know, um, directly involved in, in guiding and directing their affairs, how are we to view his presence and his work in the rest of the world? In light of all the evil that you and I see that seems so unrestrained. Well, Matthew's prophecy and fulfillment language that we find here in verses 17 and 18 help us to see that there is, that there is hope. There is hope amidst tragedy. God is at work, even if he's not the direct cause of everything that is happening. And that's a key distinction to make. Matthew is, is not going to talk at any point through here as though God is the direct cause of these things that are happening, right? He no more causes Herod to, you know, be wicked than he causes Joseph to be righteous. You know, God, God has a way of, of permitting others to will, and he superintends the affairs that, that surround people on both sides of the ends of the spectrum. God has a way of sovereignly and providentially carrying out his plans and purposes, yes, through the righteous, but even in spite of the wicked. And even as they're, they're doing the things that they're doing, and we see the brokenness and the brutality and, and the, the horrors of our world, Matthew wants us to take hope that those are not signs that God is, has lost control or that God is unconcerned with the affairs of people or that God is uncaring or unfeeling in any sort of way. God is at work even though he may not be the direct cause of all that happens. And that should give assurance to you and me. You and I who are, who are doing our, our very best to be faithful, to live, to live as the righteous ones, who are, who are attuned to the, the word of God and trying to be, be obedient to what he says as best as we can, who find ourselves in the midst of, of hardship and challenges and, and everywhere we turn, there's opposition and temptation and, and all around us. It, it's a crazy world we live in today. And you and I need the assurance of the scriptures that yes, God guides the righteous, but he is also using the wicked. He is also at work in the tragedy. That those aren't signs that he has abandoned you or that he has been displaced from his throne, that things are out of his control, or that he doesn't care. And I think that's the purpose here of this last quote from this, the Old Testament that Matthew provides in our narrative there in verse, verse 18. It's a, it's a quote from Jeremiah 31, verse 15, which depicts Rachel, the, the mother of Joseph, by the way. So there's yet another connection to sort of the, the, the Egypt sort of time in Israel's history. So he, 
he's, uh, Jeremiah is talking about Rachel who is grieving the, suffer, the suffering and captivity and the death, not of her immediate offspring, but of her distant descendants. You know, the, Jeremiah is writing in the time of, of captivity and exile, and, and he, you know, he's the weeping prophet, right? His heart is broken by what has happened to God's people, and, and he is symbolically describing what is happening as if it's from the perspective of, of Rachel, this matriarch from generations past, who's looking at, her, at what her family has become. And she sees the, the brokenness and the ruin that has come to her, to her family. The people who have been slaughtered in the streets and the, the children who have been stripped from their homes and taken to distant lands. And, and she mourns. She mourns what has happened to them. But here's the thing about Jeremiah 31. Verse 15, which is the one Matthew quotes, is the only verse in the entire chapter that strikes this discordant note. It's not a chapter about suffering. It is not a chapter about captivity. It is not a chapter about death and misery and and ruin. No, it is a chapter about hope and restoration and renewal. It is a call to the grieving. It is a call to the mourning. It is a call to those who who are suffering to look beyond the evils of the present to a time when exile comes to an end. It's, It's lifting the chins of those who are or whose faces are in the dirt, and saying, look, a light is breaking into the darkness. This, this misery and this despair does not last forever because God is at work. God is doing something in the midst of it. God has not left, he has not, you have forsaken him, he has not forsaken you. God is going to turn Israel's sadness into joy. That's Jeremiah 31. It's one of the most profoundly hopeful chapters in the entire Bible. And I think Matthew and a lot of commentators struggle to see this connection, which is amazing to me. A lot of, a lot of commentators and scholars, they come to this quote from Jeremiah 31.15 here in Matthew 2.18, and they don't understand really why Matthew bothers to put that here. What immediate direct relevance is this to anything else? Well, I think Matthew puts it here for two reasons. One it acknowledges that there are very real difficulties in life. We live life in the already but not yet, don't we? We live in the time between inauguration and consummation. And, and though all these things about Jesus are true, that in him we find a greater, newer uh, you know, Moses deliverer. In him we see a greater, newer Israel delivered model for our, our obedience and, and, and salvation. Yes, in him we see those things, and yet you and I still live in a world that is broken. His deliverance is offered, it has begun, but it has not yet been brought to completion. And Matthew acknowledges that. You can't escape the brutality of Herod from this chapter. You cannot come to, if you come to this chapter only seeing this great news about Jesus while dismissing what actually happened to those innocent babies in Bethlehem, then you aren't fully acknowledging what the scriptures are acknowledging. And Matthew quotes Jeremiah here because he acknowledges the reality of the world we live in. It is broken. Even innocent children die. But the other purpose is this, that the reader might be directed in such a way 
that they would be able to, to look ahead to a time when everything wrong will be made right. It is an anticipation. It is a promise that the deliverance begun in Jesus will be completed by Jesus. That God will start what he has, God will finish what he has started. That no matter how painful and how dire our circumstances may be, we can be assured that even amidst the tragedy, God is at work. Yes, on a macro scale. Yes, we see you know, God's great plan of salvation for all the world present in these verses. But it's also true on the micro scale. Which means that God, yes, he's working you know, in a big sense for all the world. But you can also take away from this that he's working in your life the same God. The same God at work in the Old Testament is the same God at work in the New Testament. And these types, these patterns, these symbols point to, a, to how he works, who he is, what he tends to do. And you can be sure that God has integrity and he will be consistent to his own nature. And just as he's at work on a micro scale, he is so at work in your life to renew, to refine, to bring restoration to you. And that work, the work of God, on both the macro scale and the micro scale, is always centered on and based in and accomplished through Jesus Christ. He is at the center of everything God is doing in the world and in you, the faithful deliverer who leads his people into deep covenantal love with the Father, the righteous, obedient Son who suffered that you and I might be redeemed, whose sonship is not only the means of our salvation, it is the very essence of our salvation. By his sonship, you and I get to share in his sonship. So I invite you this morning to hear God calling and summoning you. The ones he calls his sons and daughters by grace. He knows your darkness. He knows your hardship. He knows your suffering. He knows what's going on all around you. He even knows what's going on inside of you. And you and I can know that he is at work. That he directs by his word that he empowers by his spirit. So turn your hearts to him, church, today, in faithful, obedient, and righteous commitment to him. Can you do that today? By God's grace, I know you can. Let us pray. Lord, your, your word astonishes us in both its simplicity and its complexity. The, the truth of it is so simple that, that even children can understand. In fact, it is, it is the faith of a child that is the very model of, of how we are to receive your truth. And yet it is so complex because there's, there's so much contained therein. And, and sometimes it takes more work than at other times to to perceive the deeper realities of what's being 
declared through these pages. And some of us are, are more tuned to these truths than others. Some of us, it comes more easily to us than others. And, and, and some of us have a, a greater degree of desire than others. And yet through it all, we, we can be sure that your spirit, the very one who inspired these pages for us, the very one who, who guarantees its, its accuracy and its trustworthiness and its truth, is the same who comes alongside all who, who open their heart to your word. So I, my prayer this morning, as it has already been in preparation for this time, is that Holy Spirit, you would, would superintend, yes, the proclamation of your word, but now the, the appropriation of your word and the application that you would come alongside of us and help us to see where does, where does this apply to my life? What, what darkness in my life is, is, is so present and at work that I need the truth of the light of Jesus to dispel it? Where do I need to apply this, this promise of hope? Where do I need to, to more greatly conform to the, the model of Jesus who was obedient to the point of death? Jesus, where am I falling short in my obedience? How am I not being the righteous one who, who does what you say when you say it right away, all the way, every single time? Where am I falling short and how can I, how can I grow into your sonship? How can I become more like you? Jesus, how, how do I need to be delivered from sin? Because that's, that's the real enemy. That's the real, cap, cap, that's the real captivity that faces the human condition. It's not a political tyrant. It's a spiritual tyrant. And Lord, there's only one deliverer that we can turn to. How can we turn to you today? We look to you as both deliverer and delivered. The one who makes a way, the one who shows the way, the one who himself is the way. Lord, we turn our hearts to you and I pray that in these final moments we would do business with you and that we would be responsive as your spirit leads. Lord, be glorified through it all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.